We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRedGood.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I will be referencing on the podcast can be found over at rickrungood.com. Now is an incredible time to sign up because we have an absolutely massive upgrade launching in the next couple of weeks. It is going to have, I believe, double, maybe triple of the model inputs that we already have. I basically said to Rick... Um, I'm an absolute psycho and probably in the point zero 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 point one percentile of people that model out this extensively. But here is everything that I would have available if I could. Um, And my good friend, Kyle Hewitt, who I hope you know by now because he's been on the podcast, I believe he's Huey Mac something on Twitter. You can find him. Um, He'll be on the podcast again, by the way. And we started talking about modeling and because he's, he's kind of in that zone with me where uh, he looks at everything and he brought up some ideas about things that he thought would be cool to have on the site. And literally the next day I got him a meeting with Rick and the three of us all sat down together and we basically added all of Kyle's ideas to the new update. Uh, We just had another one of my friends, Jesse, who hasn't been on the podcast before. Hopefully he will be in the future. Um, But you should know him by now because he's one of the best slash sharpest DFS players in the world. And he tweets a lot. Um, (laughs) he's good, not just at golf, by the way, all sports. And he messaged me and told me that he was making the switch to Rick run good. And I basically told him, you know, I trust your opinion. I think you're really good at what you do. Give the site a look, check it out and let me know if there's anything you'd like to add to it to make it better. And I'll get you a meeting with Rick the next day and we'll just add it. Um, and that's the point here with what we're doing with Rick run good. Um, and that's why I'm so proud to be a part of it is that Rick and I care so deeply about this being the best, the most useful, the most additive product 
to anybody that plays DFS golf or bets golf. Um, and that this community, this is a community of really, really sharp people that we already have over there that care about making money long-term playing DFS golf and making money long-term betting golf. Um, and anybody who is already a part of that community is my friend and somebody that I will always make time for. Um, I'm really busy these days. Uh, but if you message me something in the Slack channel, any questions about the site, any questions about golf, any questions about life, uh, anything that you want to see change with the site, I can't promise you I'll answer in five minutes. Um, but I will be there for you. Even if the question is the one that I hate the most, which is, Hey, who should I play this week? You know, Grayson Sig or Adam Long. Um, those are my least favorite types of questions. Um, but I will still begrudgingly answer them because that's what this is, right? It's a community about helping each other. And even though, and I, talked about this a lot with Wiley on the podcast that we just did last week. I am in the process of veering away as much as possible from just giving pure pecs because that's just an aspect of this industry that I don't have a ton of interest in, have a ton of time for, um, I am not a professional DFS player. I am not a professional better. I am an information guy. Um, and that's what you are going to find with all of my work on rickrunka.com. Every Monday, I write between, Jesus, I mean, 3,000 and 5,000 words breaking down the golf course for the tournament this week. Upside and down, inside and out. I give you my entire model, um, but there's not one sentence in there telling you who to play because, like I said, I'm not a tout. Same thing with the DFS article that I post every week. 3,000 words every single week on the full weather report, the case for playing a wave stack, the case for not playing a wave stack, a full ownership breakdown of every single range from the 6k range to the 10k range the closest that you are going to find to picks in that article every week is that i'll give you four guys that i am absolutely playing that will likely be you know the core of my single entry team or that i will at the very least be way overweight to the field on um but even that, I'm like, ah, do I have to do this? But don't worry. I think a lot of people read the article solely for that section um, because at the day, we still live in a picks sports world uh, as gambling and DFS continues to grow. But again, the main point of everything that I do for rickrunga.com is to provide you with the most accurate, insightful, in-depth information that I have on golf courses, which I would probably say is my strength, ownership, modeling. Um, and again, this is all stuff that has worked really well for me. I'm no authority on it. 
Um, and hopefully it can work well for you too. I, you know, I didn't even get a chance to talk at all about the season long fantasy golf stat, uh, stuff either yet, but that's the other article that we're adding that I will be writing on the site every week, every single, so every single Tuesday afternoon slash evening, I will be providing a weekly rankings of the top 75 golfers for season-long fantasy golf each week. So last week, for example, I ranked the top 75 players that you should be playing for the Sony Open, which kind of covers, you know, team uh, leagues range from like 8 to 12 teams usually. So if you're playing in an 8-team league and you're starting six guys, you basically only need the top 50. But if you're playing in a 12-team league, which I know some of those exist as well, you're starting, I don't know, off the top of my head, close to like 75 guys, right? Which is why I went all the way up to 75. So every single week um, on Tuesday afternoon, evening, I will be doing those rankings, right? Uh, And so I've been really, really humbled and grateful for the interest that we have gotten with season-long fantasy golf, the draft that we did in Las Vegas last weekend. You can still find uh, on the rickrungood.com YouTube feeds. So go check that out if you haven't already. But, you know, one of the reasons why we are so bullish on season long fantasy is because it hits all of the checkpoints that fantasy football does. And a huge part of fantasy football is having weekly rankings, is answering start sick questions, right? Trying to decipher and say, okay, I mean, I'll just give you a random example, but say, oh, Ben Griffin is a really good fit for the Sony Open this week, and he's available on the waiver wire. But I drafted Taylor Moore in the 10th round, who's not playing in the Sony Open. Do I drop Taylor Moore to pick up Ben Griffin and make sure that my Sony Open roster is in the best place possible to succeed, but then I'm possibly sacrificing long-term on a guy that, you know, I'm more bullish on for other tournaments in the future. But that isn't necessarily in the field this week. These are the questions that I think are so fun about fantasy golf. These are the questions that I am here to answer for you. So hit me up in the comment section of that article. Hit me up in the Rick Run Good Slack channel. Um, But that's just a really long-winded way of saying I'm really proud of the work that we're doing over at the site. And I think it's a great time to sign up. If you want to specifically help me out when you sign up, and this actually means a lot to me because Rick is really stringent about not giving discounts, as he should be, by the way. The site is extremely fair-priced in the first place, and he doesn't need to give a discount. Um, but please make sure you type in Andy in the code section when you sign up. That is the only way 
um, that I am able to get any financial incentive for sending you over to the site. And, you know, I've gotten this question before, like, oh, if I type in code Andy, do I get a discount on the price of the site? And the answer is no. Rick doesn't give a discount for anything except one week a year. There's a site-wide discount on RSM Classic Week because, again, he doesn't need to. The site is so fairly priced and thriving right now because there's so much information that you now get with the site for such a low price. Um, but when you type in Andy in the code section, when you sign up, it's just a way to keep track of how many people that I have been able to bring over to the site. It's just another way to hopefully help me out a bit financially for all of the information and the time that I will make for you if you do join the community. So again, now is a great time to sign up, rickrungoods.com, code Andy, when you sign up. And we would love to have you as part of the team. All right, let's dive into the Amex. Real quick before we get into this tournament, this is my first solo Sunday podcast of the year. And by the way, um, these are usually supposed to get out on Sunday morning. Um, I am super delayed because I was sweating a rather large Siwoo Kim ticket and trying to multitask that with watching a Giants playoff game. So this one is going to come out Sunday night, hopefully still applicable for your Monday morning commute. But these podcasts usually come out Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. And like I said, I apologize that I was not able to do one for the Century Tournament of Champions or the Sony Open. In both instances, I was traveling. I am fortunate enough to do a lot of traveling. I'm grateful for that. So, you know, in full disclosure, I am not going to be able to do a Sunday podcast every single week. I will absolutely have them for the bigger events, right? The majors, probably all of the elevated events and stuff like that. But just between what my job and my life looked like last year versus what my job looks like this year. I've added a lot of stuff to my plate this year. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot more stuff for golf digest, whether it's the experts panel, or I'm going to do some more freelance writing for golf digest. I'm super grateful for that. Um, whether it's the season long fantasy golf stuff that I've had to sink my teeth into a lot more, whether it's the additional work that I do for odds checker. Now, by the way, I do a 15 to 30 minute Monday morning video with Jeff Feinberg now breaking down the betting board for odds checker. So please check that out. Jeff is one of my closest friends in the quote unquote industry, you know, not at this point, not just a Twitter friend, a real friend. Um, so the decision to add, doing this Monday morning video with Jeff to my plate um, and get to run through the board with Jeff every single Monday was kind of a no-brainer. Um, and by the way, you're not really going to find any picks in this podcast. Uh, really just depends on the week, on 
whether you are going to find picks in my Tuesday show that I always do with the guests because, you know, just so people know, unless it's a tournament with a really strong field, like this week, for example, a golf course or a golf course that I'm really excited about, or, you know, like a major championship, I will be veering away. And I again, I talked about this on the podcast with Wiley. I will be veering away this year from podcasts where I just talk about who to bet for the tournament. Because again, like I spoke about with Wiley last week, I feel like I am at my best when I am having longer form, deeper, honest conversations with people who I am close friends with or people in the golf world that I'm interested in talking to. Because to me, that is way better, more interesting and more authentic content than me explaining to you why I prefer betting Zalatoris at 25 to 1 instead of Xander at 20 to 1. And judging by the feedback that I got from the Wiley episode, it seems like people agree, um, even though I've, I've definitely got some people upset that I'm, I'm not given as many picks as I used to. Um, but for example, one thing that me and Wiley will be doing this year or attempt to do, no promises when it comes to that guy. Um, but we're going to do episode recaps of the Netflix golf show, um, where me and Wiley sit down and talk about the show, uh, whether it's working, the business side of it, et cetera, all that type of stuff. And you'll notice in the future, it's going to be a lot more guys like Kyle Porter and Dan Rappaport and Joseph LaMagna and honestly, hopefully some more players and caddies in the future too. Although I haven't had the balls to ask a lot of those guys yet. I'm friends with some of them and I don't know, I'm kind of a chicken when it comes to asking people on the podcast that, you know, would probably say yes, but I don't know. I get nervous about it. I'm working on it, but yeah, it's going to be way more people like that on the podcast in the future on the Tuesday show than it is necessarily people again who are quote unquote in the betting industry do not worry i will still have my guys on brian kirshner isn't going anywhere pj tout isn't going anywhere boston capper and twitterless steve aren't going anywhere etc i have my guy tom jacobs from odds checker coming on this week to top to talk amex again by the way really really good field by the way um so again some small changes, but don't worry. All the stuff that I think will make the podcast better um, and hopefully reach more people, right? I, I, I'm really trying to follow through with this podcast is my baby. I am so proud of what it's turned into in such a short period of time and the support that it has received to get to the place where it is today, where I'm really, really lucky and grateful that I don't need to be a smash the light guy, right? Uh, I don't need to do giveaways on the show every week to get people to tune in. I don't need to be so focused on 
getting guests with big followings so I can reach more people. This show has always been about me being able to authentically talk about golf with people that I think are smart and that I think are additive and provide good information and that I enjoy talking golf with. As far as the Sunday show goes, if you are a new listener, welcome. Uh, But the idea is for me to give you a full breakdown of the course and tournament this week and get it out again, usually on Sunday mornings, not this week. Um, Completely failed at this uh, at that this week. Uh, Again, I'm recording this now like 10 Eastern on Sunday night. Um, but again, hopefully you're listening to this either late tonight after the football game or early tomorrow morning. So when those odds come out, you're ready to rock. But hopefully in the future, um, this show provides you with as in-depth as a look as possible on uh, the golf course for the week. Although this, again, this week may not be the best example because this golf course is really bland and the formula here is fairly straightforward. So hopefully I could keep it on the shorter side because my intro was so long. Um, but again, the main reason I'm doing it outside of people complaining that it's gone, it's not gone. I was just traveling, uh, is because we have a really good feel this week. Um, a really good feel this week. And it, despite this not being an elevated event, uh, of course, defending champion Hudson Swafford will be greatly missed. But uh, in the form of Swafford, we have John Rahm, we have Xander Shoffley, we have Will Zalatoris, we have Tom Kim. Really like this spot for Tom Kim coming off a missed cut. We have Tony Finau, we have Sung J.M., we have Cameron Young, Patrick Cantlay, Scotty Scheffler, Sam Burns, Taylor Montgomery, plus all the guys that I love losing money on, like, Aaron Wise, Taylor Pendrith, Davis Riley, Ricky Fowler, Jason Day, Tom Hoagie, Brian Harmon, Thomas Dietrich, Cam Davis, you know, things of that nature. My fantasy teams are certainly in a lot better shape this week. Uh, So let's take a quick break and then dive right into the Amex. So here we go. The American Express, previously known as the Career Builder Challenge the Palm Springs Golf Classic, the Bob Hope Desert Classic, the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic, the Humana Challenge, uh, and many others. It is a professional golf tournament held annually in Southern California as part of the PGA Tour's West Coast Swing. It was previously held, and this sounds like a fucking nightmare, might I add. It was pre- We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Previously held five rounds of competition, 90 holes, uh, and was known for its celebrity pro-am, which I am hugely, hugely anti-pro-am as part of real professional golf tournaments. We'll get there pretty soon with Pebble Pebble Beach as well. Uh, But for many years, the event was named for and hosted by Bob Hope and featured a number of celebrity participants. In 2012, the event changed to a traditional, thank God, 72-hole format over three different courses with a 54-hole cut, which is now what we have very similar to the Pebble Beach event. Um, It continues to have a large pro-am, but I would say that the star power uh, of the celebrities has waned significantly in the current years. Um, And this tournament has been hosted at a number of different courses in the Palm Springs area over the years. In 1987, the tournament began kind of more of a concerted effort to at least attempt to travel to more difficult courses in the area that included the Arnold Palmer private course, Indian Ridge country club, El Dorado country club, which I actually think is a great course, La Quinta country club, Tamaris country club, uh, and the classic club. None of those courses ended up lasting, uh, in 2009, the course rotation consisted of the Arnold Palmer private course, the Nicholas private course, um, which are both at PGA West at La Quinta, Silver Rock Resort, and the Bermuda Dunes Country Club. In 2010, La Quinta Country Club, which is currently part of the rotation, replaced Bermuda Dunes. And finally, in 2016, the tournament settled on Pete Dye's PGA West Stadium course, um, which I actually like. Um, and PJ West Nicholas tournament private course, which was originally designed for the 1991 Ryder cup. Uh, and then finally La Quinta country club has stayed in the mix. Um, so it's going to be those three courses for the first three rounds with the final round being contested at the Pete Dye stadium course, uh, which is the only course that we have shot tracker on by the way. So in terms of when you're looking at course history, the first thing that I would say be aware of is only look at 2016 on because that is as long as we have had the current three course rotation that we have today. So since 2016, we've had Jason Duffner win at 25 under par We've had Hudson Swafford win at 20 under par. We've had John Rahm win at 22 under par. Adam Long win at 26 under par. Andrew Landry win at 26 under par. 
uh, Siwoo Kim went at 23 under par, and last year Hudson Swafford went at 23 under par. These courses are incredibly easy. We haven't seen them crack like the 30, the minus 30 threshold, only because it can get a touch windy and, you know, they're traveling between these three separate courses, which can create just like enough of an inconvenience that players aren't going to be able to get totally settled into one course and just tear it apart. But essentially, just to give you the basic specs, of each of the three courses and we'll spend the vast majority of this podcast talking about the PJ West stadium course, because that is the course that a, we have shot tracker on and B is the most important course for the tournament because it is the course that has two rounds at instead of one, it has the Sunday round at, but the PJ the PJ West stadium course was designed In 1986, by Pete Dye, it is a par 72 measuring 7,158 yards. Water comes into play on seven holes, which feels a little bit light to me. It seems like, depending on how wild you are off the tee, water is kind of, you know, lurking everywhere on this course. But the fairways are Tiff Green 328 Bermuda grass measuring 29 yards wide. So not the widest of fairways. The rough is Tiff Green 328 Bermuda grass measuring two inches. Very short and benign rough. And the greens are 5,000 square feet on average. Tiff Dwarf Bermuda grass with Poa Trivialis running 11 on the stint meter. The Nicholas Tournament course, uh, which I would say is like the second hardest of the three, uh, designed by... You guessed it, Jack Nicholas in 1987. Par 72 measuring 7,147 yards, so very, very similar in length as the stadium course. Water comes into play on five holes. The fairways are, once again, Tiff Green 328 Bermuda. Rough is Tiff Green 328 Bermuda, measuring roughly two inches. And the greens, which are a lot bigger, one of the reasons why this course is easier uh, are 7,000 square feet on average Tiff Eagle Bermuda with Poa Trivialis running a little bit slower, 10.5 on the stamp. And then finally, La Quinta Country Club, uh, which in my opinion should not be a course on the PGA Tour schedule. I don't know why it's here. It could be replaced by a million different courses in the Palm Springs area, but it was designed by Lawrence Hughes, with a Pascuccio redesign in 1999. Not going to hear me talk a ton about the architectural merits of Lawrence Hughes. But anyway, par 72, 7,060 yards, so shortest of the three courses. Fairways are Tiff Green 328 Bermuda, as expected. Rough Tiff Green 328 Bermuda, measuring two inches, and 4,000 square feet Bermuda grass greens with rye grass and Poa Trivialis. So a little bit smaller greens, but also the shortest of the three courses. And 2023 uh, sees us back at a 156-man field, three-course rotation between those three courses. Uh, Like I alluded to, players will rotate across the three courses during their first three rounds. 
each playing around at each course. And then those who make the cut, the 54 hole cut will play their final round at the PJ West stadium course. Uh, luckily for us from a handicapping standpoint, these three courses are extremely similar in terms of their breakdown and required skill set. Uh, but for the purposes of this podcast and for the purposes, and I talked about this article uh, in the article that I wrote for Rick Run Good, I am going to be focusing primarily on the PJ West Stadium course as it has, you know, not only receiving double the attention of the other two courses, including the final round, but it is the course that we have the most data on. Basically, the way that I am setting up my model this week is I am mainly using numbers to model for the PJ West Stadium course, but uh, accounting for the fact that for the Nicholas Tournament course and La Quinta Country Club, both of those play a little bit at least, especially La Quinta, easier than the PJ West Stadium course. Like, in that one made model, I mean, I considered making a model for three separate courses, but even I'm not that much of a psychopath. But, you know, the what I would recommend doing is I w- would recommend mainly looking at the numbers from the PGA West Stadium course. And then when you're making a model, just give a little bump to stuff like birdies or better gained or wedge play or opportunities gained, or strokes gained total in easy scoring conditions. Because the only things that you're going to be able to get from the Nicholas Tournament course and the La Quinta Country Club, they're all the same. Like 99% of courses in Palm Springs are extremely, extremely similar. So the only thing that I would do from a modeling perspective is I would look at the numbers from the PGA West Stadium course And then I would just give like a little bit more of a bump to the fact that players are going to need to go pretty low at the Nicholas one and the, and La Quinta country club. Right. So anyway, uh, starting with the PGA West stadium course, uh, this was designed by Pete Dye. I am on the record as a little bit cooler, on Pete Dye than most, I have a ton of respect for him. As an architect, I think in a lot of ways, modern golf architecture would not be where it is at today without Pete Dye. Um, but this was, you know, basically designed to be the West Coast version of the acclaimed TPC Sawgrass. Uh, and the course even features its own Island Green, 17th. It, it kind of borders on on like copying uh, sawgrass to a certain extent. There are differences, of course. There's some differences in the agronomy. Uh, sawgrass is harder, certainly harder. Um, sawgrass is a little bit more positional. There's a little bit more trouble off the tee at sawgrass, I would say. You know, there's a little bit more thinking that you have to do, especially on the tee shots and probably going to be doing a little bit more clubbing down on Sawgrass, whereas the stadium course, you've got a little bit more leeway to bomb away. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's got its own island green. Uh, this one's actually a little bit longer and harder than the 17th at Sawgrass. It's uh, 165 yards. It is, um, like I said, 
It is, you know, probably the signature hole of the course. There's another hole that features that extremely, extremely deep bunker. Um, and we'll talk about bunker play a little bit going forward too, because that is one of like the odd staples of the stadium course is that it has like the deepest bunkers on the PGA tour. Um, but you know, it basically goes, the stadium course is the hardest. The Nicholas tournament course typically plays as the second easiest. And then La Quinta country club typically plays as the easiest. Like I said, the other two courses do not have shot link data. Uh, so the data that I will be using going forward is coming from the Pete Dye stadium course last year, the stadium course played as the 10th easiest course on the PGA tour. And each of the last three years, it has ranked inside the top 10 easiest courses on the PGA tour schedule. Again, that is not often the case with Sawgrass. So there's your biggest notable difference is that in terms of its teeth, it's pushback. Uh, the West Coast version, just it's just not as hard as TBC Sawgrass. Um, but do not get it twisted. There is trouble on the stadium course. And it actually kind of, there's some interesting comps out there. You could obviously, obviously make the desert connection and compare the stadium course to a TPC Scottsdale. You could combine compare it to a TPC Summerlin because those are both desert golf courses. The one architecturally that it actually reminds me the most of, the West Coast Stadium course. Um and TPC Sawgrass actually fits this course a little bit too in terms of a comp. But TPC Twin Cities um is another one of those TPC risk reward. There's a lot of water. It rewards aggressive driving, but it's still, it's driver heavy, but it's still kind of short enough where you're going to have a wedge in your hands a lot of the time. Um, but last year, the stadium course and TPC Twin Cities, which is one of the reasons why I made the comparison, I think was right up there too. It maybe maybe ranked second, but the stadium course ranked third out of 38 courses in penalty strokes per round, uh, and the prior year it ranked first. So there is trouble on this course. You are going to see some fun movement on the leaderboard on Sunday. Um, and last year, the stadium course ranked first in reloads per round, meaning you hit a ball off the tee and you just got to hit another one because the point where it crossed, it's in the water and you can't even drop up there. You just got to hit another tee shot. Uh, and three of the last six years, it is ranked as the number one course on the PGA tour in terms of reloads per round. So you're probably thinking to yourself, this sounds pretty hard. Why does this rank as one of the 10 easiest courses on the PGA tour schedule? Well, I'll give you the reason for this, despite the fact that there is a lot of water on the TPC stadium course. Um, there is not a breath of wind on this course, right? I, I just got back from Palm Springs. I just played four rounds of golf at Palm Springs at three different courses. It's essentially like playing golf in a dome, right? I mean, you're going to get times 
when it's Wendy. And when it's Wendy, it's really Wendy because everything is kind of emphasized in Palm Springs, right? So at night, it gets cold. And when it's cold in Palm Springs at night, it like really gets cold just like during the day when it's hot because everything reflects off the mountains, right? So when it's hot during the day in Palm Springs, it's really, really, really hot, right? But the reason why the stadium course still plays pretty easy is because it's very short, right? Um, the par threes really provide the most pushback. Um, all of the par threes play between 165 and 223 yards outside of the fourth, which is a fairly benign 170-yard hole. The other par threes all play over par. Uh, the infamous par three, Island Green 17th, plays as the fifth most difficult hole on the course with a birdie rate of 16.5%, but a bogey or worse rate of 15.2% as well. Um, but the 16th and 13th holes, which are the par, the other par threes, are really tough. Uh, playing as the two toughest holes on the course and each yielding a bogey or worse rate of over 24%. So, once you get past the par threes on the stadium course, um, the par fours are, you know, they're pretty spread out in terms of distance. They range from 346 to 471 yards. And in my opinion, I think the biggest flaw of the stadium course on the West Coast is that it doesn't have any long par fours, right? They're really just isn't enough long you get long iron play because all four of the par fives you can pretty much read reach into but you know the these courses on the pga tour that don't feature long par fours anymore and this event doesn't this event doesn't feature a single par four on the property measuring over 475 yards it's ridiculous i mean that is the main reason why this tournament is so easy from a scoring conditions perspective is because they have not made any changes to these courses to create long par fours, right? So all of these uh, par fours are, you know, they're kind of mid-scoring in general from, you know, a lot in the high 300 range, low 400 range there are seven par fours that range between 470 and 390 yards and um those holes play as some of the more challenging holes on the course playing right around even par um but the par fives are just an absolute cakewalk i mean you have them as let's see i mean the 13th, 18th, 17th and 16th most difficult holes on the course. The fifth hole is the fifth hole is actually a bit of a challenge, right? The fifth hole is a little bit tougher of a par 5 playing to a scoring average of 4.83 with under a 37% birdie percentage and under a 2% eagle rate. Outside of that, however, the 8th, 16th and 11 all play between 4.53 and 4.75 yards historically. You know, these are, we're talking par fives that are really par four and a halves, 
right? Which, again, we've lost this on the PGA Tour, and I think it's really dumb. I think it's really stupid. I mean, Graham McDowell made a comment, I think, recently this year. I I, I don't want to throw Graham under the bus. It might have been, like, Matt Wallace, one of those guys where maybe it was Tyrrell Hatton where they said that all par five should be reachable in two if you hit a good drive. I think that's like one of the most asinine comments regarding golf course architecture I've ever heard in my entire life. But uh, I think the major issue, in my opinion, with this course is that we go to three courses, all four of them are par 72s. I mean, if you don't have more length on the property, how fucking hard is it to make one or two of these courses a par 70 and just turn one of these par fours or one of these par fives into a long par four? But there's not a single par five on the property that even remotely is a three-shot hole. And there's not a single par four out of all three of these courses that is even remotely close to a long... I mean... Will Zalatoris or John Rahm can play this course, and I don't think there's a par four that they'll have anything lower than an eight iron in on. Is that golf at the professional level to me? I, I mean, I don't, I, 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 it just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, right? Which is, again, I could, I, I don't want to stand on a soapbox and do my whole diatribe, but this is what happens when we get a really great field at the American Express. You're going to, sorry, you're going to have to hear me complain about how silly of a goddamn tournament this is. And I'll keep the breakdown of the Nicholas Tournament course and La Quinta Country Club extremely brief. Uh, Both are very similar, and while I am mainly speaking statistically and modeling out for the stadium course, like I said, I did place an increased rate in scoring statistics, birdies are better gained, opportunities gained, strokes gained total, and easy scoring conditions uh, to account for the fact that two of the four rounds will be played at these extremely benign scorable courses. Both last year and historically, the Nicholas Tournament course has ranked Uh, slightly easier in scoring average to the stadium course and La Quinta Country Club has ranked as the easiest of the three and uh, very close to the easiest on the PGA Tour. The Nicholas Tournament course is defined by its challenging set of par threes, which play as the first, sixth, seventh, and third most difficult holes on the course. So again, the fact that there are zero long par fours on this course means that all of the difficulty in this golf course gets wrapped up in the one shotters, which again, I just think is a really poor way to design a golf course. I think it's an issue if all of your hardest holes are par threes, just like I think it's an, like it's just, there needs to be more variety, but you know, and I don't think you'll see this pretty much anywhere else on the PGA tour, but the hardest hole on the Nicholas tournament course is a 172 yard par three. Uh, but here we are. It is called lily pad. Um, it is kind of an Island green. It's the eighth hole on the course. And it is, it is one of the more nerve wracking, racking, uh, shots on definitely of this week. Um, it features a over a 20% bogey or double rate. 
uh, with over a 7.1% double ring. So it's tough. It's a hard hole. Um, and despite the absence of water, the 17th hole is another pretty nerve-wracking par 3 that measures 209 yards with a false front and a bunker guarding both the front left and the back right of the green. Another pretty nervy iron shot coming down the stretch, but, uh, you know, this course is, ends up being so easy because not a single par four measures over 462 yards on the scorecard. The 10 par fours range from 364 to 462, um, and it's really the 18th, 9th, and 6th that are the only par fours that keep the players on their tolls. The 18th is a good finisher. It ranks as the second most difficult hole on the course and features over a 20% bogey or worse rate. It's, you know, it's kind of like a lot of the finishers that you see on the PGA tour, those longer par fours. It's not entirely unlike the 18th at TPC Sawgrass, although I think that's a much better hole. Um, but water basically runs down the entire right side of the hole. You know the hole that I'm talking about where it's a longer par four where you got water all the way down the entire one side of the hole. It comes into play on both the tee shot and the approach shots. Uh, and then once you get to the par fives uh, outside of 15, which is actually quite strong of a par five, um, you know, the seventh and 11th holes, those are long par fours. They're not par fives. They yield a scoring average of 4.41 and 4.43 uh, with over a 60% birdie or better rate. And uh, driving accuracy at the Nicholas Tournament course is 67.8% uh, compared to the PGA Tour average of 62%. And greens in regulation is 70% compared to the Tour average of 65%. So like most Jack Nicholas courses... Very inviting fairways. You know, there's room for you to operate off the tee. It's a short course, but you're still going to see players pull driver a lot because they can, right? Because they these are pretty inviting fairways. And then when you get to La Quinta, I mean, again, this should not be a PGA Tour course. Uh, it's, once again, the only form of pushback whatsoever are the par threes that you know, and not even a single one of them plays over 206 yards. They rank as the fourth, ninth, fifth, and third hardest holes on the course, keeping in theme not a single par four at La Quinta Country Club measures above 470 yards, and the 10 par fours range between 382 and 469. Um, only three par fours on the entire golf course measure above 430 yards, which again, listen, I get it. Palm Springs is a retirement community. You're playing to, you know, probably a much older membership, but we got to find something better than this. Uh, four, uh, three par fours over 430 yards. There's three holes on this course that maybe a PGA Tour player doesn't have a wedge in. And the set of par fives is arguably more disgraceful. I mean, 516 to 547. La Quinta Country Club is the only course on the PGA Tour where there's not a single par four that measures above 470 yards and not a single par five that measures above 550 yards. 
and all of the par fives are reachable in two. They all feature over a 43% birdie rate. I mean, the course is too short to be on the PGA Tour in 2023. Um, And it's really dopey, in my opinion. With all the options in Palm Springs, it's a bit silly to me that they haven't either even attempted to lengthen this course or simply find another option. Um, Greens and regulation here, by the way, 70% as well. So you want to talk about putting contests, here you go. So let's talk briefly about the required skill set here that I think you're going to want to have and then one or two players that I will be looking at. Um, You know, off the, you know, I think the stadium course, you can find yourself in some trouble off the tee here. It did rank the 11th out of 38 courses in strokes gain off the tee difficulty. Um, In each of the last five years, it has ranked as one of the harder off the tee courses on the PGA Tour schedule. Off the tee is hands down the most difficult aspect of the stadium course, which is kind of curious given the fact that it is ranked close to the very easiest on the PGA Tour and missed fairway penalty. And that is essentially because the rough here is not a problem whatsoever. Uh, If you miss just slightly in the rough, it is... No issue whatsoever, but it does feed and it does feature the 27th widest fairways on the PGA Tour last year as well. But the one issue is, is, you know, the big miss, right, is that you are going to find some tee shots here where water does come into play. It's not, you know, aggressively in play where there's a lot of holes on the course where it's like a very, very nervy uh, tee shot. But, you know, there are a couple holes on the course where you really want to be able to keep the ball on the planet, right? These are inviting wide fairways, but if you miss in, say, other locations in the rough, the bunkers, the desert, the water, you can find yourself in some serious trouble. Um, So for me, I think the off the tee stat that had my interest the most was good drive percentage because I'm not necessarily looking for super accurate drivers of the ball here. I'm not even looking for super long hitters of the ball here either. Although we have seen some longer hitters have success here. Shorter players are by no means disadvantaged at a course like this either. But the reason why I like good drive percentage is because that can help me identify the types of players that are going to keep the ball in the planet off the tee here, which is really all you need to do. The only issue here at the stadium course off the tee is if you find yourself, and and this falls in line with TPC Twin Cities and with TPC Scottsdale to a certain extent, where the one thing that you can't do is be in the water or the desert. And if you can avoid those things, then you're going to be absolutely fine here off the tee. In terms of approach, um, 39% of approach shots at the stadium course last year, strokes gain came via approach, which is, you know, pretty healthily above the tour average of 34.7%. Um, Last year, the stadium course ranked 21st out of 38 courses in strokes gain approach difficulty. Um, Again, the stadium course is sneakily a harder course than people seem to think 
from T to green. I think the other two courses get so watered down with scoring that it hides the fact that the stadium course does provide some pushback from T to green. Um, I mean, it featured middle of the pack greens and regulation percentage last year. And it generally historically ranks right around middle of the pack in terms of easiest greens to hit on the PGA tour. One thing that I did find interesting was that in 2021, it ranked 34, 31st out of 40 courses in approach difficulty inside 150 yards, but fifth out of 40 courses in approach difficulty from greater than 150 yards, which basically speaks to the fact that if you have a wedge in your hands, which you are going to do often, um, you are going to be very fine here. But on some of the longer approach shots, you're going to have to deal with some pretty well-guarded greens. You're going to have to deal with some deeper fairway, um, some deeper greenside bunkers, which I'll get to in a second. But the proximity buckets that ranked above tour average here last year were 50 to 75 yards, 75 to 100 yards, 100 to 125, and 150 to 175 yards. So this event is definitively a wedge fest, right? There are no long par fours on any of these golf courses. So the only time where you are going to have a long iron in your hands, and you will have long irons in your hands because all of these par fives on every single one of these courses are reachable in two, even by shorter players. Some of the long iron shots are, are, are a little bit tougher here, right? Um, so for me, I, I looked at that 150 to 175 range where nearly 25% of all approach shots come from. You could certainly make an argument for throwing in some flip wedge play as well. Um, and if you wanted to get kind of big brains you could maybe say oh well you know you're gonna have to hit these four you're gonna have four times during the round where you're gonna have a long iron in your hands and the green's reachable in two so you're gonna be motivated to go for it um and there are some pretty deep greenside bunkers maybe you want to give a nudge to long iron play i would rather look at par five scoring in general uh, but as we go to around the green, last year, 16.1% of uh, shots came around the green via strokes gain, which is healthily above the tour average of 14.5%, although that is a huge anomaly as the long-term event average drops all the way down to 12.2%. Like most courses in Palm Springs, Pretty damn easy around the greens, right? I, again, one of my issues with Jack Nicholas and Pete Dye as a designer is I don't believe that they have the talent that a Tom Doak or a Bill Core or a Ben Crenshaw has when it comes to creating, you know, interesting around the green complexes. So two of the last three years, the stadium course has ranked as straight up the easiest course on the PGA Tour in around the green difficulty. Uh, with a fairly standard greens and regulation percentage, you could make the argument that short game will come into play on the stadium course, but that does get somewhat mitigated by the other two courses where if you're having to rely on your short game at La Quinta or the Nicholas Tournament course, there ain't a chance 
you're in the mix in this tournament. Now, the one thing that's interesting to me is so each of the last five years, the stadium course is ranked as one of the easiest courses in strokes gain around the green difficulty from the fairways. Each of the last five years, it has ranked as one of, if not the easiest uh, course on the PGA Tour in terms of strokes grained around the green difficulty out of the rough. But one thing that is really important to stood out that was interesting to me, and I guess you could see some visuals of this um, where I forgot what hole this is, but there's this there's this massive, massive greenside bunker that's like really tall that you don't want to get into. I could maybe link the uh, picture and the description of this podcast or the description of the rec article, but the stadium course consistently features some of the most deep and difficult bunkers on the PGA tour. Um, and I will actually most certainly be weighing sand save percentage this week. I, you know, each of the last five years, the stadium course has ranked as either the hardest or the second hardest course in around the green difficulty from the bunkers. So I have like a fairly standard weight on sand save percentage here. These are really deep bunkers. And that's not super surprising. That is a Pete Dye thing. Pete Dye does like to create some pretty deep um, and difficult greenside bunkers, but I guess he kind of said, and, and Sawgrass too, right? Sawgrass has some pretty tough bunkering as well, but I guess Pete Dye said the biggest defense that I'm going to give you guys is I'm going to create some really deep and well-guarded greenside bunkers. So I do think that if you're looking at any around the green metric this week, I think you want to look at sand safe percentage actually. And then putting, and again, not to completely throw stones in the direction of a Jack Nicholas or a Pete Dye, but I've never been a huge fan of their ability to create interesting green complexes. Last year, 28.9% of strokes gain at the stadium course came via the flat stick. Uh, although, again, that is a pretty big anomaly as that number ticks all the way up to 35.2%, which is right around the tour average of 35.6%. So from a statistical standpoint, the stadium course is not a putting contest. There is enough pushback from tee to green that that is like a real golf course. But once you add in the other two non-shot tracker courses, the Nicholas Tournament course and La Quinta Country Club, those are putting contests, right? Um, and I believe it was John Rahm walking off La Quinta where he said piece of shit putting contest now infam infamously. Um, and those courses fall very, very, I mean, those courses are comfortably, in my opinion, in the putting contest definition. Last year, the stadium course ranked 37th out of 38 courses, however, in putting difficulty. Uh, but dating back further, there have been years where it has ranked average to slightly below average in putting difficulty. And like I mentioned, Pete Dye has never been known for his ability to create interesting green contours. And last year, the stadium course ranked 31st out of 38 courses in putting inside five feet. It ranked 35th out of 38 courses in putting difficulty from five to 15 feet. And last year, it ranked 36 out of 38 courses in putting difficulty from greater than 15 feet. So, you know, you've got a 
putt your ass off on these courses in terms of sheer volume because it features such a high greens and regulation percentage and it is a track meet but i would not say that this is a difficult putting course by any means um you know i think basically that you are okay looking at bermuda from a modeling perspective even though this bermuda is different from florida bermuda uh, it's overseeded with some POA at this time of year, but I generally don't think that there is a, ma- you know, I've played around in the past with, because these are the same greens that we get at TPC Scottsdale, basically in terms of the overseeded Bermuda. And I played around a little bit last year with getting super in the weeds, breaking down the different strains of Bermuda and the overseeded. I didn't really find much value going that much into the weeds with that. Um, So honestly, I think that you are fine pretty much just looking at Bermuda. Although I would keep in mind that there are definitely different subtle nuances and the players will be the first to tell you this, that putting on these types of greens are different than the type of Bermuda that they put back at home at a medalist or you know, if they're at the Honda Classic or Bay Hill. But I've done stuff in the past where I've taken like these small percentages on weights on the different courses that featured the overseeded type of Bermuda, uh, like waste management in the past. And, you know, depending on the year, Sawgrass, depending on the time of season, Valspar. Like, if you want to have a conversation with me about that, I will have a conversation with you about that. I This is the stuff that I realized at one point is not podcast worthy. Um, you are fine looking at Bermuda putting on this course. Uh, and then the thing that I would really spend a lot of time looking at in terms of your players this week, more so than off the tee, more so than approach, more so than putting, way more so than around the green is... Statistics like opportunities gained, which I am on the record about being the most predictive statistic outside of strokes gain approach, because what opportunities gained is, is it basically shows the amount of birdie looks that a player is giving themselves inside 15 feet per round. That to me is the most predictive in terms of scoring, right? Because birdies are better gained can essentially turn into a putting statistic, right? A player like Taylor Montgomery, for example, is like 60th in opportunities gained, but third in birdies are better gained because he is not elite at providing himself with scoring opportunities. He's just an elite putter and he makes a bunch of 15 foot plus footers, right? So what opportunities gain does, and especially, especially on a course like this, where you are going to have a wedge in your hands so, so often, and you are going to have so many scoring opportunities. I mean, literally every single hole you could make an argument that this is an opportunity for a PGA Tour pro to make a birdie. You want to identify the players that are most consistent on a round-by-round basis at giving themselves birdie chances inside 15 feet because I will tell you at an extremely elementary level, the player who wins this tournament is going to 
be the player that has the best combination of short to middle iron play, keeps the ball in play off the tee, and putting. That's it, right? That is it. This is even a more extreme version of Wiley, where I said a somewhat similar thing last week at Wiley, but this really so much comes down to who is going to provide themselves with the most scoring opportunities inside 15 feet and convert at the highest rate. And so I think you want to be looking heavily at birdies or better gained. You want to be looking heavily at opportunities gained. You want to be looking at heavily at players that raise their baseline in easy scoring conditions. I'm pretty much on the record about the fact of like, can this guy get to 30 under being pretty subjective, right? And it's like a lot of these guys like Cameron Young and Will Zalatoris that you think maybe can't get to 30 under. They've done it before on the Corn Ferry Tour. They've done it a million times in college. They're just competing now on courses where the tournaments that they play don't necessarily call for that. Um, but I do think that there is a certain group of player that does kind of, and this is you know going to help you, in my opinion, a lot more with the players lower down the board than the players higher down the board. But there's a certain type of player that feels more comfortable in easy scoring conditions and feels more comfortable going low than they do on a course where they don't feel like they need to make a million putts. They don't feel like a ton of pressure is put on their putting and maybe they feel better in harder conditions, right? Matt Fitzpatrick, right? Matt Fitzpatrick is the type of guy that will tell you, I think my greatest advantage comes in harder scoring conditions, right? That's where I'm able to separate myself from the field versus, I don't know, we'll say a Johnny Vegas feels like he is best suited for these birdie fests because he's not afraid of going low. Um, he can get his putter to cooperate it and he can shoot scores in the mid to low sixties at a pretty consistent basis where there's some players that like really don't like that type of golf, which is why I'm a little surprised John Rom's playing this week because I don't think if I was John Rom, I wouldn't like this type of golf. And John Rom is actually a fade for me this week coming off a win where he didn't actually hit his irons. Great. Like, John Rahm has such a built-in advantage at a course like Torrey Pines or Memorial or even Augusta or 99% of U.S. Open venues. Like, he has such a built-in advantage at those courses that I don't understand why he would subject himself to the frustration. And if I was him, I'd be frustrated too. The frustration of playing a course like this where his greatest skill set and the fact that he is so fucking good at golf doesn't get accentuated the way that it would at a real golf course, right? Like if I was to play John Rahm in a match, if I was forced to play John Rahm in a match, I would choose this golf course, right? Anyone would choose this golf course. They wouldn't choose Torrey Pines, right? Because the advantage between me and John Rahm grows mightily at a course like Torrey Pines, whereas at a course like this, like there's only so many good drives he can hit. There's only so many times that he's going to have a long iron in his hand. So personally, I don't understand why he's playing this week, especially coming off a win. It's not an elevated event. I don't know. Maybe he feels like he wants to avenge the putting contest and proves that 
he can win this type of event too, but I don't really think he needs to prove anything. I, I think whoever wins this event, even if it's an elite player, doesn't really show me or tell me anything or predict anything in terms of how they're going to perform the rest of the season or at major championships. Um, but that's it for me. I've already gone way too long on this course. I will give you my model very quickly. Um, I combined all of this together and who is here is who it shot out for me. Again, if you want my full model breakdown, you could find that in my rec article, which will be posted on Monday on the site. Number one for me was Tony Finau. I think there's a great spot for Tony Finau. We have seen him perform very recently at very easy courses, and he has proven that maybe unlike John Rahm, he can kind of get down with these types of courses and, and likes going low. Number two is Tom Hoagie, which also doesn't entirely surprise me, even though he was disappointing last week. He finished second here last year, I believe. Number three is Sung J.M. I think this is a pretty good spot for Sung J.M. coming off a missed cut last week. Number four is Patrick Cantlay. Also unsurprising to me, he tends to do quite... He is one of the elite players uh, that actually raises his baseline in easier scoring conditions. And you could maybe make an argument that despite him being so strong from tee to green, um, he is also such an elite putter that he actually raises his baseline in easy scoring conditions. Number five is Will Zalatoris, uh, who I actually like this week. Again, I think there's a misconception about Zalatoris being able to keep up in a pure birdie fest. He finished uh, sixth here last year, and he looked pretty good at the Century Tournament of Champions. I, I, I think the injury stuff with Zalatoris is going to be fine. Speaking of injury stuff, Xander is sixth, and I have reached out to that camp, and he seems good to go. Um, when I say he seems good, good to go, that means he's going to play. I don't know. I haven't gotten specifics on how good he is feeling. Um, I'm probably more inclined to play Zalatoris than I am Xander. I just think there's a little bit. I actually think there's a better course for Zalatoris than it is for Xander. And I feel a little bit better about Zalatoris's health than I do about Xander's health. But um, those are two interesting guys that get the reputation of tough course players because of how good they've been in U.S. Opens. Both have injury stuff. And as a result, you may be able to get to like bona fide top eight to 12 guys at a good ownership number. Um, number seven is Tom Kim, who I really like this week as well. Tom Kim's ball striking numbers at the Sony were pretty damn fucking good. He just had the worst putting performance of his young career. Um, I like Tom Kim this week. Didn't like him last week. And I tried to warn you, by the way, too. I said this in a tweet. I said the Sony Open, and this is a tournament that continues for some reason to be really kind to me. Um, although I didn't have as good of a DraftKings week as I did last year, obviously, but I did hit the Siwoo outright. But I said, all you guys that are playing Tom Kim at 31, 32, 33%, um, this was Webb Simpson last year at this tournament. Webb Simpson was 30 plus percent Sony Open week, and he had just played really well at the RSM Classic 
gained like 10 strokes on approach and Webb was like 30% returning to a course where he had a ton of great course history and th- over 30% of people played Webb Simpson and I played a 8% Hideki Matsuyama and turned 100k into a <laughs> Jesus, 100K. I turned $100 into 5.2K by winning the Pat Mayo Listener League and the $33 single entry because I played Hideki Matsuyama and a bunch of other, you know, veteran old guys like Matt Kuchar um, instead of 32% Webb Simpson. So Tom Kim is 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 an interesting look this week. I, I mean, I think he has such a devoted like disgusting fan base seriously like unbearable fan base at this point that maybe people are just going to go back to him and you're not going to get an ownership break but he's not going to be 30 percent this week and and i think this is a plenty good spot for tom kim number eight is brian Harmon. number nine is adam hadwin who i love this week um i think adam hadwin will be pretty popular because he checks a ton of course history boxes he's been flat out unbelievable here he is on my season-long fantasy team so maybe that's just the way that I end up getting down on him uh because you know maybe the course history drives his ownership up but this is a this is a very good spot for Adam Hadwin he ranks ninth number 10 is Scotty Scheffler who quiet just I mean and he was really good at the tournament of champions too but just like just been a little bit quieter since a breakout year last year. Um, the putter just hasn't hasn't been good. Uh, Eleven is Cameron Davis, who I was pretty big on last week, and I would say he disappoint. He didn't kill any of my DraftKings lineups, and luckily he came in at ended up coming in at pretty high ownership, so I didn't end up having as much of him in DraftKings as I would have thought, but. Uh, he is number 11 in my model. This is another course uh, that he has been good at in the past and should be able to tear apart. Then you have your Mark Hubbards and Ben Griffins who are both going to rate out well here. Uh, both maybe popular, pretty popular, 7K, 7.3K guys. Ben Griffin was certainly excellent this week at the Sony. Uh, John Rahm is 14th. Again, uh, he was pretty low in my century model. Rom is just not going to rate out as well for me on these courses because I think his advantage is mitigated. I I mean, it's not like 14th is bad by any means, and he still rates out higher than Cameron Young and Sam Burns and a lot of other great players. Um, but I'm I'm a little bit out on Rom this week. Um, and I really liked him at the century, but I, I don't I don't know if I'm feeling it this week for him coming off a win. Number 15 is Emiliano Grillo. That's a good look. Number 16 is Cameron Young, which is another interesting one. I don't know if you remember Cameron Young uh, was like firmly in the mix here last year and then had a collapse of epic proportions. Matthew Neesmith is 17 in the model. I expect him to be a popular option. Joel Damon is 18th in the model. I expect him to be a popular option. Uh, And Sam Burns is 19. And anytime you get Sam Burns on a Bermuda course with easier scoring conditions, um, 
you're probably going to find some Sam Burns interest, although he's been, you know, he hasn't been really popping the way that he normally does. And then my guy Thomas Dietrich rounds out the top 20. I have already done a full hour and 15 minutes on what I believe to be one of the more disgraceful events on the PGA Tour schedule, but it's good to be back. Um, It is good to be back. I know people have missed this Sunday pod. I have missed this Sunday pod. Um, I Again, my schedule is a lot busier this year in terms of the week-to-week commitments that I have, but I know that people find it helpful. Hopefully you found this one helpful, even though maybe I didn't dive as deep as I normally do just because I, I didn't feel like I had a ton of great material to dive into when it came to these types of courses. Um, But hopefully you enjoyed this one and you will be able to find me all over the place this week. I have a player that I believe is going to win this tournament that I'm confident in. And, you know, maybe that is just the, you know, I just hit a 45 to one outright. So maybe I'm a little overconfident right now, but I have a player that I do believe is going to win this tournament. Um, I am going to save that for my Monday morning video with Jeff Feinberg Um, and my Tuesday podcast, of course, with Tom Jacobs as well. So uh, I guess it's Sunday. It's late Sunday evening by now. So best of luck, I would normally say, with your bets this weekend. I hope you had a good wildcard weekend. I did not have a great start to my wildcard weekend. I was on both the Vikings and what else was I on? I was on the Vikings and the Chargers. Uh, Those ones hurt, but I was also on the uh, Bengals. I don't know if they ended up covering because I recorded the most of the most of my podcast during that game. Uh, But until then you can find me Monday morning on the odds checker YouTube page with Jeff Feinberg You can find me back on this podcast feed with Tom Jacobs. You can find my Rick Run Good article where I go way more in-depth into my model and some of these courses on the site on Rick Run Good on Monday morning. And we'll see you next week. Cheers.